Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Valeri Shafiro will join us to discuss cochlear implants. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, the melodic sounds of an orchestral symphony or the welcoming sounds of friendly conversation are facets of normal hearing that many of us often take for granted until, of course, something happens to our hearing. Several advances have been made to restore lost hearing, including the cochlear implant. But what are these implants and how do they work? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Valeri Shafiro. Professor Shafiro is the director of the Auditory Research Laboratory in the Department of Communication Disorders and Sciences at Rush University. His research focuses on both theoretical and applied aspects of auditory perception and cognition, and he joins us today to discuss the fascinating world of cochlear implants. Uh, Professor Shafiro, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Uh, well, certainly a pleasure. I'm glad you could make it all the way down to our studio from Rush. I'm sure a lot of people out there are actually curious. So how actually are we able to hear? So it's a rather complicated process, as many processes in our body that allow us to live in this world. And we can start with the basic that there is the acoustic sound or changes in the air pressure outside of our ears that are caused by some different sound sources that make those. It can be cars on the road, it can be somebody's footsteps, can be somebody speaking to us. All those sounds or changes, minute changes in air pressure, they reach our ears through the air. And once they reach our ears, they vibrate the tympanic membrane, also known as eardrum. And once that happens, that sets into motion the vibrations of the tiny little bones that we have in the middle ear. And so these bones, as they vibrate, they do several things, including adding some energy or amplifying some frequencies in the sound. And that energy in the end gets to our inner ear, which is also known as cochlea. In the inner ear, we have fluid, which is being moved by the bones of the middle ear. So the vibration now is changing this medium from air, from bone, to now the fluids in the middle ear. And as the waves travel through the cochlea, they move tiny cells, or to be more precise, the cilia, which sits on top of the cells, and the cells are called hair cells. And as these cells, the, or the cilia of the cells is moving, we get so-called ion pump going, or changes in the ion channels in the cells, and the cells start reacting to this. So this is a very monumental process in the sense that this is where the mechanical energy, which then becomes hydraulic energy, becomes a neural energy after that point. And there are more details than that, but I think as a general overview, this is what would happen. So the hair cells, specifically the inner hair cells, are the biological transducers that change the form of energy 
or that converting the energy from its uh, mechanical hydraulic to now be in a neural form. And from that point on, the action potentials are generated. They travel up the eighth nerve, the auditory nerve, all the way to the cortex. And that's, in a nutshell, the mechanism of normal hearing. Wow. So basically all those sound pressure waves eventually get transformed in the cochlea inner ear into this neural signal. That's right, yes. I see. So what happens then for people then who lose their hearing? Right. So there are many ways in which a person can lose hearing. And there are some mechanical ways, for example, something can happen to the bones of the middle ear. And that would be the so-called conductive hearing loss, when the signal cannot get to the inner ear, for instance. So that's one common mechanism of losing hearing sensitivity. Another one can be that there are changes in the cochlea, for example, changes to the hair cells. And that can happen as people age. Generally, it can happen because of noise exposure, for instance, or it can happen for many other reasons, including genetic reasons and so on. So once the hair cells are no longer there, the process of conversion of mechanical and hydraulic energy into neural can no longer work. Now, fortunately, this doesn't happen most of the time as all or none. So at least as long as there are some hair cells remaining, this process can still go on. And there are also a finer distinction that I didn't mention before between the inner hair cells and the outer hair cells. Mm. The biological transducers are the inner hair cells. They are the cells that send information to the brain, the information in the sound. The outer hair cells function a bit differently. Their role more is to amplify the signal and to tune the cochlea so that the inner hair cells can do their work optimally. And so when, for different reasons, either outer hair cells are dying or inner hair cells are dying, there is obviously problems with hearing. Now, depending on how many outer hair cells or inner hair cells are there, we can still have some residual hearing. So there are degrees of hearing loss that varies with severity of hearing loss. Also, another important point in that regard is that outer hair cells, because they essentially, their role is to optimize the hearing process, they're not as essential to hearing. So if there are no outer hair cells, if there is outer hair cell death, there are still things that can be done as long as the inner hair cells are working well. If, on the other hand, there are no inner hair cells, but the outer hair cells are preserved, then that's not going to be very helpful. And then there is little that can be done at the level of the cochlea. Mm. Now, there are other ways uh, in which a person can regain at least partial hearing, and that, I guess, leads to cochlear implants. I see. So, essentially, the inner hair cells are the most responsible for transmitting the signal to the brain, whereas the outer hair cells are just sort of tuning that information. That's, that's right, yeah. I see. So, what have been the typical approaches for replacing lost hearing? Right. So, the most typical approach is the, what, what people probably know most about is the hearing aids. Mm -hmm. So hearing aids, they can amplify the signal in rather sophisticated ways and modify the signal so that it will allow the person to use the remaining cochlear hair cells to make maximal use of the sound. Mm. The mechanism by which hearing aids help people is essentially further optimizing the acoustic hearing, which is the signal is still gets to the cochlea from its acoustic form and it still goes through the normal processes or uh, what remains of the normal processes of sound to neural energy conduction. So that's what is most widely used. Now, in some cases, this may not be helpful. And this can happen, for instance, if 
there are no hair cells preserved. So there is no further need to amplify if there is no hair, hair cells, inner hair cells. In that case, one other relatively new way of trying to restore hearing is through cochlear implants. And one condition for being able to help with cochlear implants is that the auditory nerve or the cells in the neurons in the auditory nerve have to be preserved. That's a condition, at least partially. Mm -hmm. If the auditory nerve is not preserved, then there is nothing to stimulate there, and then it's not likely to be helpful. I should probably mention how cochlear implants work and how they differ from the normal hearing process and how hearing aids can help people hear. The major difference in cochlear implants from everything else is that this is essentially direct electrical stimulation of the person's brain through the auditory nerve. So the electric signal is being recorded by a microphone or so sound acoustic signal is being converted to electrical energy by the microphone records it then it's going through some processing to prepare it but it is still essential an electric signal and then after that the signal goes to an array of electrodes which are sitting also in the cochlea and the electrical stimulation of individual electrodes then stimulates the auditory nerve directly. So to put this in perspective a little bit, even though the superficially the ear can look fairly intact, it's not doing any more work for hearing. And to give another example, a person with a cochlear implant, because this is a direct electric hearing, can do things like plug their implant into a cell phone or a CD player, mm. in which case there is no acoustic sound that actually leaves this CD player or cell phone. It goes, as it were, directly into the person's brain mm. through, obviously, a signal processor. So this is kind of a bionic interface, a, in effect, a completely artificial sensory system, which is being represented by a cochlear implant. How well does the cochlear implant replicate the pattern of stimulation that normal hearing would? Right. Obviously, it is not as good as normal hearing. Mm -hmm. Normally, and probably one other major component or principle in the organization of, of the peripheral auditory system is the so-called principle of tonotopicity, mm -hmm. a tonotopic organization. And so we know that there are different frequencies in every sound. Every complex sound, such as the sound of speech, has many different frequency components. And as even normally, as the sound with many different frequencies comes into the inner ear, it is being essentially analyzed by different components of the cochlea or being received by different components of the cochlea. And so the cochlea and the auditory nerve are organized anatomically, meaning that different parts of the peripheral portion of the auditory nerve have respond best to different kinds of frequencies in the sound. Now, with an electrode array, we are trying to preserve this frequency specificity so that low frequencies would stimulate the places where low frequency information would usually be located and high frequencies stimulate places where high frequency information would be located. Now, because we use fairly crude methods for doing this, for putting the electrode array inside the cochlea, we can not be completely sure what place actually is being stimulated. So very often you get something of a mismatch. Hmm. So that's one problem. Another problem is just that normally we have about 30,000 ganglion cells in the auditory nerve, 
And so now we replace with this with about 16 electrodes or 22 electrodes. And so you can see even if you cannot take every neuron in the auditory nerve as a separate information channel, it is still quite a dramatic change in the frequency resolution that you can obtain with this. So a short answer to this question is that there is a lot of information that is lost by going to the cochlear implant. But having said that, I should also add that it is amazing that with only 16 or 22 channels of information, mm -hmm. or sometimes even less than that, we can do, or patients with cochlear implants can do as well as they do. And some of them are able to do amazing feats going from not being able to hear anything to being able to, for example, talk on a cell phone, hmm. even in noisy settings. Now, this is more of a star patient right. kind of performance, and some people, unfortunately, don't get that much benefit. But it is amazing that in, even in some cases, and actually in majority of cases, people do actually benefit. So, again, this information is fairly coarse, as you said, and it might be hard for some people to imagine or visualize this, but you've brought a few examples that perhaps people can uh, get a sense of exactly what a patient with a cochlear implant is hearing. So. That's right. So, uh, just to give a little introduction to this, sometimes what we try to do in the lab is to simulate the information that the person with a cochlear implant would get, and we modify the signal, acoustic signal, in the way in that it would be normally modified by a signal processor of a cochlear implant but then we present the output acoustically mm -hmm. and this signal we can then ask many different questions and test people with normal hearing how well they can perceive certain things and so that gives us a kind of a little introduction before we try things on actual real cochlear implant patients and also gives an idea of what it may sound like. Mm -hmm. And is it the case that the normal patients would have the same percept that the ones who have complete hearing loss would? Right. Well, there are obviously differences mm -hmm. in many ways. This is not an exact copy, an exact replication of what would happen mm -hmm. or what a, a person with a cochlear implant would necessarily get. This is more what a person with an implant would get under ideal circumstances. Mm -hmm the subjective perception of the sound mm -hmm. may be quite a bit different. Mm -hmm. The objective information that is being transmitted to the ear mm -hmm. or to the auditory system is pretty close. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we can uh, try this out on our listeners to see if they can tell which sounds uh, we have coming up here. We'll play this sound and we'll see what people think. Here's sound number one. Okay, so that was an example at four channels. Four channels. So kind of roughly a person with three functioning electrodes okay. may hear something like this at the first time. All right. And so the, this next example will be a, a few more channels, actually. Uh, 16 channels, 16 I channels. believe, yeah. Okay, so here we go. I think a lot of listeners out there are probably still scratching their heads. <laughs> Final example will be uh, full spectrum. The actual sound as it okay. was recorded. So that was a church bell, right? <laughs> this was a church bell. And notice that if you listen to this again, you, you can see how the sound changes over time, and that's, that's pretty much preserved. But the more finer spectral information in the sound is almost completely lost mm -hmm. in the simulation in the 4 and 16 channel version, a little bit more in the 16 channel. Mm -hmm. But now there is another sound that uh, haven't heard one 
maybe it will be easier for the listeners to identify uh, the next one. Okay. Okay, that was the four-channel version? That was the four-channel version, yeah. Okay, now for the 16-channel version? Can, can get, again, an idea of what this may be like, okay. but now to be sure, play the original, right? All right, the original version now. We can go back one more and play a 16-channel version again to now see if it's easier to perceive. Okay, so the 16-channel version again. Yeah, so certainly once you've heard the original sound. Once, once you know what to listen for, and it's an amazing thing that once we know what it's supposed to be, we can attend only to those pieces of the signal that actually make it uh, sound like what it's supposed to be for us. So in a sense, we're filling in the lost information. Filling in kind of, right, or carving out right. the piece of information that are in the signal. Okay, and then here's the final version, which I think is... Maybe we should give some cues to the listeners. Ah, well. Um, it's that it's a speech, and it's something that probably most listeners have heard about. <laughs> comes from a movie, and even if you haven't watched the movie, uh, you've probably seen it in commercials or somewhere, so it's... a. Uh, very famous expression from a movie character. Okay, see if you can guess it. Here we go. It's four-channel version first. Four-channel version. Okay. Still kind of hard to tell, I think, from uh, yeah. the four-channel version. So now, sixteen-channel version. Okay, now's the the full sound. Oh, groovy, baby. So that was Austin Powers. <laughs> And, and maybe if we can play one of the previous versions, just people to listen to it, so just to, to see if that became easier. Let's, let's go back to the four-channel version, which four is the channel, most degraded. Yeah. I can certainly pull it out after, after hearing the original. Yeah. And then here's the, uh, here's the 16 again. Wow, so, so basically a patient with cochlear implant is essentially getting that level of information but can still extract speech. That's right. Mm. And uh, I should also mention that speech is a very redundant signal. Mm. So there is a lot of acoustic cues. And because this is not something that people over the course of their development as a species have had some control over how they produce and how they perceive it, there are many, there is for every speech sound, there are multiple acoustic cues. So as long as, even if it's degraded, as we often hear speech and noise, for example, mm -hmm. and we get only portions of the actual acoustic signal of speech, but based on that, as long as there is a minimum number of cues, we can often still get the message accurately. And also there is some information, because we've heard this many times before, we've heard we know the language of the speaker, we can also fill in some of the missing parts, as it were. Mm. So how much does uh, learning play in adapting to sort of a new sensory input? Well, it definitely plays a large role, mm -hmm. because as you heard, this sounded completely distorted mm -hmm. to even a normal ear. And given that sometimes there is a mismatch in uh, terms of what frequencies are being stimulated by the implant, this sounds as a lot of noise. There are some interesting stories that cochlear implant patients tell you about their first stimulation when the implant is just turned on for the first time. And sometimes you get the sense, especially from people who have not heard for a long time any sound, that this is something different. They don't know what sound is like. Mm -hmm. And they may feel some sort of vibration or some sort of different sensation. And only after a while, it starts sounding 
like what or some this kind of strange sensation gets gets categorized as sound or this is sound right. and then uh, as implant patients venture outside into the world with their implants all of a sudden they start noticing these things oh this is a car turning signal in my car i never knew this existed i never knew it made sound oh this is uh, somebody walking upstairs in the apartment and noticing footsteps and so on so there is definitely this process of learning usually it starts with environmental sounds mm -hmm. very often that where people learn to listen to all those sounds that we often take for granted we don't even notice them mm -hmm. but the world is is rich with sound all of a sudden and there is this and they're very excited about this usually even for the sounds that we would consider annoying like a car horn or something along those lines uh, mm -hmm. but people this is something they can hear now mm -hmm. and also with speech obviously there is a period of time that people need to learn to listen to speech differently. And there are various things that can be done during that time. And they, they exercise, they practice, and so on. So learning does have, a, have to play a role. I see. How much do um, multimodal effects also play into, for example, vision, uh, the McGurk effect, capture some information just by looking at the lips? Right, right. Well, if we look at the early implant literature or the history of implants, the first implants were actually very crude one-channel devices. Mm. And so they could not convey any spectral information. Mm and they were just giving the overall energy fluctuation or a change in the overall level or loudness of the sound, as it were, okay. that was happening. And the first, and in the beginning, it wasn't even clear to people right away that this was something to pursue. But what was clear that to many people, the lip reading would get better. So it was clear that there was some information transmitted mm -hmm. that would help them to communicate. And from then on, with advance of technology, it's fairly soon became obviously abundantly clear that there are many benefits. And so it's been actually 25 years since the FDA approved the first implant in the U.S. Wow. So it's uh, it's been uh, a very interesting 25 years. It's a short time as far as uh, the history of the device, but there have been many changes since then. Hmm. So uh, what are some of the uh, future challenges then for uh, helping improve these devices? Well, the future challenges one problem is that definitely cochlear implants, while it is uh, beyond doubt at this point that in the majority of cases, cochlear implants help mm -hmm. for people who qualify, obviously. At the same time, it is also clear that they're not as good as normal hearing. Mm. And so the major challenges are making sure that people would attain as much hearing or approximate as much of normal hearing as we can with given the technology. Now, very often you get the case where hearing in quiet is not much of a problem. But once a person gets into some more of a typical social setting, into a restaurant, a busy office environment, a street corner, speech perception becomes much more of a problem. Mm. Also, now that people get implants with less severity of their hearing impairment, people expect more from implants. And so if 25 years ago, people may be very happy if they just got some extra help with improved with lip reading. Now people want to enjoy music, which is quite understandable. Mm. They want to regain this ability. And so there is uh, quite a bit of research recently having to do with music perception in cochlear implants. And actually, Julia Cheng in uh, my lab, she's doing a project on music perception mm. with cochlear implants. Mm. So 
that's one of the challenges. Another area in which research is developing is usually we have two ears, and we have two ears for a reason. Mm. That helps us to localize sound in space, helps us in noisy settings. And so with uh, cochlear implants, people are exploring the idea of having two cochlear implants, mm. assuming that you have two severely impaired ears. And there are definitely benefits of having two implants, but at the same time, the benefits of going from one implant to two infants are not as overwhelming as going from no implant to one implant. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes there is a lot of work to be done in making sure that that works. So these these are some of the bigger challenges. And then then there is a lot of work that is going on. What is the best way to deliver the signal to the cochlea? how to bring the information. We're still stimulating the auditory nerve rather crudely because we're going through the bone of the inner ear through modulus, stimulating the auditory nerve. So there's quite a bit of information or energy which is lost. Mm-hmm. And so there is a, quite a bit of technical issues involved on in how, how you can convey more of the spectral information to the brain, essentially. Well, it looks like we're running slightly out of time. I'm just curious, uh, maybe to close, how did you become interested in this uh, whole field of research? Um, well, there is, it, it's been a, a, a long way and kind of with many turns in different directions, but I was interested in perception of environmental sounds, and that's actually one area that we we're focusing in my lab at the time, how people with implants perceive environmental sounds and what information, how that relates to speech perception as well. But uh, I was interested in perception of speech and the perception of environmental sounds as other kinds of meaningful sound. Uh-huh. And also because cochlear implants really opens up a very new area in which many old questions can be asked, old theoretical questions Mm. can be asked in very new ways. Mm. This was very exciting and the idea of actual people benefiting from the research that we can do is also obviously a great appeal. So that's speech, environmental sounds, and, uh, and cochlear implants. Well, maybe to close, do you have any final words regarding cochlear implants and hearing? Well, I would encourage people who are interested in this to explore more about this. There is obviously a lot more information about this than we can fit into the space of this interview. But looking up even online, Mm -hmm. there is a lot of information. And on our lab website, there is more of simulations if people want to go and check them out. They can go to our website and try different environmental sounds, speech sounds, and get, uh, get another sense of what this may be like. I'm sure a lot of people enjoyed the demonstrations and probably want to hear more of them. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Well, Professor Shafira, I want to thank you very much for uh, joining us today on the Grok Science Show talking about all the very fascinating developments in cochlear implants and, of course, a normal hearing. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And you were just listening to Professor Valeri Shafiro discussing cochlear implants. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
it's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, a good listener, or tuning you out. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think that they would be a good listener, or if they would just tune you out, and maybe a little reason why. Professor Shafiri, ready to play the game? Yes. Okay, here we go. Person number one, a good listener, or would tune you out, talk show host Jerry Springer. Now, Jerry Springer is definitely a good listener. I'm not sure that people who he interviews on his show are good listeners, but I'm sure that, that he himself is a good listener. I, I think you'd have to be to listen to the, some of the stories. <laughs> that, that's right. That's right, yes. All right, person number two is the Apple CEO, Steve Jobs. Uh, Steve Jobs, I don't know much about him other than he is a rather mysterious personality. And I think he would have to be a good listener to get to the normal elementary school, high school, and then get to where he is. Now I'm not sure what happens to after you turn the corner and become the CEO of a major company. But I'll go with a good listener, but maybe with a caveat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, person number three is the uh, pop starlet Britney Spears. Britney Spears. Well, I think she hopes that people who listen to her are good listeners. <laughs> but uh, for her, I don't know, we'll have to check her hearing. Okay. <laughs> Person number four is real estate mogul Donald Trump. Donald Trump. I would imagine that he can be a good listener hmm. and he can be a bad listener. I don't know. If you ask a scientist a simple question, you can't expect a simple answer. So uh, we'll go with both. <laughs> All right, and finally, number five, good listener, or we'll tune you out, the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Well, Barack Obama is definitely a good listener. Mm -hmm. I think that time will tell whether what he listens to actually, whether that's a good strategy, but, but he's definitely a good listener. Okay, well, very good. All right, well, uh, Professor Shafiro, I, I do want to thank you again for uh, sticking around playing our game, the Grokatron 5000, and, of course, talking about all the very fascinating research you're doing over there at Rush University. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>